Hey, all you podcasters out there. Uh, my name is Alex Sheets. Um, I'm one of the campus ministers here. I know many of you. It's good to hear from you or slash you hear from me in this facility again. Um, confession, uh, we didn't record the sermon, the first sermon opening 1 Corinthians at the table uh, on our on our opening night. And so um, this is my attempt to re-record that. Um, second confession, I am, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it the way, uh, as close as I can to the way it was stated then, um, but it, I'm, I'm in front of no one right now, and so there's no one here to make eye contact with and laugh at my jokes, so, so forgive me if it comes across weird, but I'm not saying they're laughing at my jokes then, I'm just saying that we're just going to roll with it. So, with all that being said, uh... Welcome to the table. <laughs> um, guys, so podcasters, uh, we have an amazing, an amazing semester ahead of us. Um, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are very, very excited. This is going to be a very special semester to walk through college students and old friends with. 1 Corinthians is filled with beautiful and powerful verses. A lot of us know some of them. Verses like 1 Corinthians 11. This is probably one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. There's some out there. John 3.16, Romans 6.23, those are, those are probably uh, good running mates, but, but 1 Corinthians 11 might be one of the most quoted New Testament verses ever. It's that part where Paul talks about the tradition of the Lord's Supper that was handed down to him. He says, this is my body. This is my blood, speaking of Christ. And then he says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That verse has been quoted over and over again for two millennia by churches as they gather. 1 Corinthians. Another, it's possibly one of the earliest gospel testimonials and possibly one of the simplest uh, defenses of the gospel comes in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, hey, this is what was handed to me. Um, like, we saw Jesus, Paul, I, Paul, Peter, 12, they saw Jesus. And then they saw him die. He lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. They saw him. They saw him. And if he hasn't raised from the dead, then we have no hope. But if he has, and I encourage you, this is Paul's defense, if he has and, and our faith is based on historical evidence, go ask those people I just mentioned, if he has raised... Then where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's in 1 Corinthians 15. It's coming later. And uh, probably everyone, Christian or non-Christian, knows this one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul just goes off 
in what seems to be near poetry, talking about the love that God has called us into. I mean, this verse, 1 Corinthians 13, I'll tell you about it in a second. But when you, when you are rivaling Shakespeare with your quotability at weddings, you're doing something right. And I don't even, Paul wasn't even trying to be poetic. It's just when he starts talking about the love of God and the love that we're called to, he starts speaking, he's like, it's like, if I speak in the tongues of men, human eloquence, or of angels, but I don't love, I have nothing. If I speak God's word with, with power, if I, if I reveal all that it has to be revealed, if I have faith to say to a mountain, jump, and, and it jumps, but I don't love, I have nothing. Bankrupt without love. I'm like a clanging gong. He goes, love is patient, love is kind. We've heard that. He says, three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. It's all in 1 Corinthians. I'm, I'm not lying to you. A lot of this semester is going to be hard. 1 Corinthians is like a messy dinner table conversation. There's going to be some hard things, but we're going to own it. We're going to take those hard things and we're going to listen. And we're going to own the things that Paul talks about. But there's a lot of beauty in these passages too. And today, we start at the very beginning. So turn, podcasters, I don't know if you're driving right now, so you feel free to not turn. But we start at the very beginning in Acts 18. Acts 18. And I'm just going to paraphrase for the sake of time. Um, but here's the story of Acts 18. This is the founding of the Corinthian church. So Paul goes to Corinth right after Athens. I'm not going to lie to you. That's actually my favorite. But Corinth is cool too, I guess. I kind of have to say that right now. And he meets Priscilla and Aquila, two faithful workers in Christ that are just kingdom workers for their entire life. Not as flashy as some of the other people, like Paul or Peter or Apollos, I'm like 90% sure that they're the ones that brought Apollos to the kingdom anyway. I'm pretty sure that was in Acts 2. I, I should probably look that up. You're welcome to Wikipedia that though. But these faithful co-workers in Christ, he meets them there. And Paul, in his typical Paul fashion, he goes right to the people of God. He goes to the synagogue and he shares the gospel with them because that's their inheritance. Jesus was a Jew and he came to the Israel. And so Paul goes to them and he shares them. And surprisingly enough, the leader believes in Christ. The leader gives his life to Christ, which is kind of rare in Acts. Kind of rare for a synagogue leader to completely change positions. So the synagogue leader comes to Christ and the Lord gives Paul a vision saying, Hey, Paul, I want you to stay here. There's going to be faithful work in this city. Stay here, camp out. And, and it was an encouragement, and Paul did. But while he was here, the rest of the people of synagogue, they didn't like, I guess, having their leadership disrupted because um, Paul eventually goes and starts sharing with the, God, with the Gentiles. And so they sue Paul in front of the Roman governor, and while they're suing him for disrupting the peace, um, they, uh, uh, the Roman governor like didn't care. He was like, why, why are you bothering me? I don't care. Get away from me. And so they lose the lawsuit. And here's the funny part. Here's the funny part. Okay. 
it says they take the new synagogue leader, a guy named Sosthenes, and it says they just beat the crap out of him right in front of the Roman governor, and the Roman governor did not care. Poor Sosthenes, man. Needs to get better friends. Needs to get better something, man. I don't know. Maybe they just didn't like him. He's kind of new. So, that's the story of the settling of the Corinthian church. Paul goes away. He actually writes one letter before this letter. So, technically, this is 2 Corinthians. We don't have the first letter. And then a year and a half later, Paul writes this letter to them, probably around A.D. 55. And it goes something like this. First text of the year, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in Him in every way, in all speech and in all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You are called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how the letter opens up. And notice the wording of Paul in his thanksgiving. Notice what exactly he's thanking God for. He says, enriched in every way. He thanks God that they are enriched in every way. In all speech and all knowledge, testimony of Christ is confirmed among them. That they're not lacking any spiritual gift. They're waiting for the day of Christ to come. They have they're so rich that they have every single spiritual gift that they could possibly even want. And then it says that God will keep them firm. That they will be blameless. Notice, notice the wording. Notice the action. Paul, in his thanksgiving, is thanking God solely for what God is doing thanks Him for the grace given. He thanks Him for what God is doing in the moment and what God is going to keep doing till the very end. God is faithful. It is His character. But can I, can I point out this passage real quick? Verse 2. I'm going to read it again. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as Saints. Saints. Like, yeah. Like, these guys? Like, Corinth? Like, like, this is like, this is like me 
going to my family reunion and throwing out the word saints at them. Okay? Like, there's, there's plenty of words I can use for my family, love them deeply, and they would actually probably agree with me here. Saint isn't one of them. They would say, Alec, there's many S words you can use around here, boy. You keep that saint business to yourself. There's saint just doesn't seem to line up with Corinth. Like, can, can I tell you about Corinth? Let me tell you about Corinth. You, you judge for yourself. Here's just Corinth the city. Just Corinth the city. Okay? Just give you a, a, a vague idea of the size. This is an ancient city that was about the size of Broken Arrow. So think uh, a little bit about the size of Edmond, uh, twice the size of Stillwater with college students in it. Um, I don't know where any of you guys live right now, so, but I know most of you have been to Stillwater, most likely. Um, had about 100,000 people in the surrounding city. Massive city. One commentator says that when I say Corinth, you think of Las Vegas. This was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It had the temple of Aphrodite there. It's called the Acro-Corinth. Now, I don't know if there's any Percy Jackson nerds out there. I don't know how many uh, mythology buffs there are. But Aphrodite was not the goddess of marital faithfulness. Aphrodite was the goddess of erotic love. And you, <laughs> you didn't go to the temple to renew your vows. You know what I'm saying? This was in Corinth. It had a reputation. This temple... If I can just give you an understanding of, of, of how the ancient world ran, this temple was a state that, that, that the city was surrounded, the center of the city. I actually don't know the structure of the city, but if you can think of like the, the worship of the city, this was state-ran prostitution. This was state-ran brothel. The temple of Aphrodite had a thousand... Um, had a thousand... What do they call them? Um, well, a thousand people that you can go in and interact with, for better words. Um, and in that, you would be worshiping their God. And if you were to be a servant of the city and of the gods, you would go and visit that temple often. Think about that. Think about the pressure of your family and the city to send you to the temple. That's part of what it meant to worship. I'm just going to use the words right now. That's what we call twisty. It's a little messy. That was Corinth. And the reputation that Corinth had, Corinth, a Corinthian, was literally slang for a prostitute. A Corinthian girl, if you said that to someone, you were calling them a prostitute everywhere else. Apparently, what happened in Corinth did not stay in Corinth. This was the city. But, 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 the church was different, right? The church, the, these people are, uh, Paul calls them saints. He calls them saints sanctified by Christ, right? They're different. Allow me to introduce you to 1 Corinthians. Here's a picture 
just a snapshot of what we see of the first Corinthians just from the letter. We have a church completely divided. Completely divided by powerful leaders ganging up together, focusing on all the wrong things, building themselves up, saying, I, I follow Peter, I follow Paulus, I don't care, you guys do what you want, I've got, I've got my group, prideful, prideful about who they're with. Heavy, heavy class divisions in this, in this church. The poor did not associate with the rich, or more like the reverse actually. When you hear these verses in 1 Corinthians about love one another, about give yourselves, and the rich are looking at the poor and they're saying, you're telling me that I have to serve these guys? No. Forget, forget that. I don't want that. Heavy class divisions. Very, very self-centered church. Believers, brothers and sisters who were called to die for each other, were suing each other in public scandals over things that were rather small. Things they could have taken care of on their own. They'd rather sue each other in court because they were thinking only of themselves. Oh, don't mention, forgive me to forget, the affairs, public affairs. Public affairs that some people in the church were affirming. Like this is how corrupt it was in some places. Like one man was sleeping with his father's stepmom, sorry, his father's wife, and some people were affirming that. Saying things like freedom in Christ. Like, like they were letting their section, they're, they're, they're letting this t- corrupt version of spirituality create this corrupt version of sexuality. And it is so corrupt that even the Corinthians, even the non-Christian Corinthians were looking at this stuff and saying, like, dude, whoa. Like, that's not, that's not what happens here. Some are visiting prostitutes, calling it worship. Others are like dating Nazis and saying that you have to be completely celibate if you want to live a valid spiritual life. This was a crazy church. Had all kinds of things going for it. And if we saw this church today, if you and I saw this church today, I'd be honest. Let me be honest. We'd be shocked, but not scandalized. We Americans would be shocked, but not scandalized. Because I believe that the Corinthian church is the closest thing we see to the American church in Scripture. And when we're reading 1 Corinthians this semester, this is the closest we're going to come to the Apostle Paul writing to our situation. And in light of all of this, in light of all the stuff that we just read, the snapshots, Corinth, the messiness, let's read verse 2 again. To the church of God at Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. I don't know what Paul was looking at. I don't know if he had read his own letter. I'm going to assume that he did. But for now, let's just ask this question. How could God 
call these messy, broken sinners his holy people. How could God call these, this, this, this mess, how could God call these messy people his saints? That's a good question. And I guess since we don't actually have to take a break, I'm going to keep rolling. But for that question, God has a great answer. We've actually heard his response already. It's in the text. I'm going to give you a spoiler. It's in the text. But before we get back in the text, let's dare to ask the question one more time. How could God call these messy, broken sinners, this messy people, how could God call these messy people His holy people, His saints? Like, is it a low qualification? Like, is he just is he just passing it out nowadays? Is it like is he like the Oprah Winfrey of sainthood? Just everyone gets a gets a saint. Everyone's a saint. You come on, get in here. You're a saint now. Is it like Boy Scouts? No offense to my Boy Scouts out there. I have high respect to the Scouts. But is it like you pick up a trash and you you, you get a badge and that badge is your saint? Like, what is this? How, how are these people saints? How could God call these people saints? And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm asking for myself here. I told you that the Corinthian church is the American church. And I am a part of the American church. I see the same stuff in myself. No, no. I haven't been to the temple of Aphrodite, Okay. And no, I haven't sued anyone yet. Some of these students, I'm not going to lie. Drew Moss, you never know if that guy. But when I look at my life, and I'm being honest, I know that I'm just as broken and messy as these guys. I have the same pride. Like, why is it that I view myself, my thoughts, my opinions as more important, more worthy of attention than everyone else. Why am I entitled? Why am I entitled to anything? I have that pride within me just as much as they did, maybe even more. And I am just as self-centered, perhaps even more Like, why is it that my life is always about me? Everything I do revolves around Alec. Why is it like I'm watching the Alec Sheets show? A poorly made sitcom that no one likes, everyone's tired of it, still running on prime time. It's always there. I'm self-centered. I know I am. And why is it that I have the same brokenness? We mock their sexuality, but Americans, I I know I have it too. I have things in my past. I have things in my past that Christ has healed me from. And this semester, we're going to be owning up to that. We're not hiding from anything. Christ heals us and we speak out about what He does. I could keep going, 
I could keep listing off these things, but if I could just give it to you in one one phrase, one phrase that I know is my problem, and maybe maybe it's our problem as Americans. We want a Christianity on our terms. We want to choose who we love and don't love. We want to choose when life is or is not about us. We want to choose when sexuality is going to line up with Christ and maybe when it doesn't. Picking and choosing. Like when was Christianity a buffet? When did Christ say you get to have whatever you want but discipleship, if you don't want the hard stuff, you take and leave it. We want a Christianity on our terms. And how, how could God look at a messy, broken, sinful man like me, like me, maybe even like us, and call us one of His holy people, one of His saints? And here's the answer in one word. Grace. Grace. Grace is how God calls us saints. To the Christians in the room, non-Christians, I'm going to speak to you in a second, but let me just let me just speak to my Christians here in a second. I need you to hear this. And I need you to hear it and eternalize it and make it who you are. I am so tired of hearing about brothers and sisters who think that God hates them, think that God views them as a screw-up, think that everything they do is wrong and they're just tired of being wrong, not understanding that just at the same time God speaks truth to us, grace is always there. I need you to understand the grace of God in your life. Listen to me. If your view of God only sees the past, only sees the past, only sees your mistakes, only sees yesterday, that's not the Lord. That's your report card from high school. That's a college entrance exam board looking at everything you have or haven't done and giving you a pass or fail. That's not God. God's grace has cleansed your past. Cleansed our past. Maybe if your view of God is okay with the past, but in the present, you don't really know. You don't really know if he's like on your side or not. He's like, he's like watching and waiting. Uh, he'll put you on timeout if you mess up. You do something wrong and, and you're done. That's not the Lord. That's a high school coach that doesn't like you. That's waiting to bench you. That's not Jesus Christ. That's not His grace. Jesus Christ graced cleanses our past and is transforming our present. Our present. And 
if your version of God is okay with the past, is with you in the present, you're tight now, but one day, one day when you're not looking so hot, or you're not acting as good as you once were, you're, he's probably you might he might leave you. You're not entirely sure. That's not the Lord. That's an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend waiting to happen. Verse eight. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Grace has cleansed our past, transforms our present, and gives us hope for a future. That is the Lord. That is the Lord. And all of this is made possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know this is podcast format, but I mean... I don't know, non-Christians or people that are on the fence, it never hurts to hear the gospel again. All of this is possible because Jesus Christ stepped foot into us, into our mess, into this broken, and if I can say it, into our sinful lives. But He did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. And no one asked Him to. No one said, hey, would you please, God didn't say, hey, would you please, like, go save those people. It said Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him because he knew the glory that was coming. He did it of his own accord. Step foot into our brokenness. Live the life that we should have lived and died the death in our place. So he bought grace for us. So that those that he calls saints, he says, I have grace. You don't get to call them broken. You don't get to call them messy. To me, those sinners are saints. Because to the Lord, because those to those that are in the gospel of Jesus Christ, messy people are pure. Broken people are beautiful. And sinners are are saints of the Most High God only, only through the grace of Jesus Christ. That is who He is. That is who He always will be. Verse 8, with you till the end. And that, if I can finish our session together, is who He always has been. God does not change. I'm going to read from verse some Psalm 103. I once again, I don't know if you're driving, but you're welcome to turn there. I, I, Psalm 103 or you can just read it later. Psalm 103. Beautiful beautiful passage where King David one day was caught up in the spirit and reflected on God's mercies towards us. And here's what he had to say. Verse 10. Psalm 103 verse 10. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His faithful love towards those who fear Him. 
as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. Brother and sister, wherever you are, if I could just leave you with this question. How far, how far is the east from the west? How far is the east from the west? Because however far that is, if you can find a number, you're not supposed to find a number, if you can find a number, that is how far that God's grace has rewritten our story, our past, our present, and our future in Jesus Christ. Thank you.